Well, let me begin by telling you about two judges who made the news a few years ago for very different reasons. The first judge was Daniel Pierce Higgins. He was named and shamed as Britain's most lenient judge. Uh, more often than not, the sentences he gave did not fit the crime, so his leniency was not a good thing. It was a bad thing. It was so bad his colleagues questioned his judgments. Lots of the sentences he issued out were increased after judicial review in the appeal courts. Other judges just said this was ridiculous. And that's what led to the public questioning his credibility as a judge. I mean, he, his sentencing actually caused public uproar at times. There was one case in particular where he sentenced a man who performed despicable abuse against a young person to just community service. People were raging, and rightly so, because the punishment didn't fit the crime. What do you think about judges like that? Well, they deserve to be exposed. Judges like that are bad. The second judge is Michael Cicinetti. He's a judge in Painesville, Ohio, and president of the American Association of Judges. He has made the news on a number of occasions for giving out sentences, uh, sentences that he calls uh, crime-appropriate sentences. As uh, Alyssa Morrow found out when she stood in the dock, she was guilty of animal cruelty after leaving her dog alone in her cesspit of a home for a week. She was a hoarder and she never cleaned. It was a disgusting house. Chickenetti gave her a choice, 90 days in jail or sit for eight hours a day for a week at the local landfill. He wanted her to experience what the dog experienced in her home. And she chose the landfill. Now his judgments <coughs> are unconventional to say the least, but he's been praised locally and nationally by peers and by public for his judgments. You know, and, and that's right, because people love to hear of judges judging justly and declaring crime appropriate sentences and punishments. Judges like that deserve to be praised judges whose punishments truly fit the crime. Now, I want us to bear those two those uh, principles in mind, even as we walk through Revelation 15 and 16, because in it, we see that God himself is not only declared to be just and good in punishing the people of the world for their sins, but praiseworthy. Praiseworthy for his wrath. Praiseworthy. Do we praise God for his just judgment? Do we read what we find in the judgments outlined in the seven seals, the seven trumpets and seven bowls of Revelation 6 to 18 and say, wow, praise God for doing what's right? I don't think we do. I think we have a tendency to be more inclined to wince a little. Oh, these judgments are fierce. They are graphic. And we haven't even got to the hell bit yet in Revelation. Well, maybe we're quietly embarrassed by God's actions. You know, we feel it's a bit... OTT. Maybe even if we're properly evangelical, we'll mumble something about God being holy and righteous in his anger against sin, but quickly talk about the happy ending. But that shouldn't be, and this passage says so. It's not enough just to move through these chapters as if they're just bare and uncomfortable facts about how everything's cleared up and swept away, ready for the new heaven and new earth, which we like to talk about most. No, these judgments in these chapters make heaven burst out in praise of God and his righteousness and not just for his character, for his deeds. 
for these very fierce and graphic judgments. They make heaven want to praise God a great deal and they should make us want to do that too because they are crime appropriate punishments. So let's look at this, uh, these couple of chapters together in two chunks, starting with uh, chapter 15 verses 1 to 4 to begin, where we find number one, that God is praised for the justice of his judgment. Now in verses 1 to 4, you've got God's people bursting into a song of praise. The question is, what prompts the song? Well, it's a sign. A sign of God's commitment to judge the world with punishment that fits the crime of humanity's rebellion. Let me explain. This is the third sign, you see. We've had two signs already back in chapter 12. If you remember, the first was a woman representing the people of God. And the second was a dragon representing Satan, the enemy of God. And we learned from that passage and chapter 13 that Satan is violently enraged against the church all the way up until the end. From state persecution to false religion, the church is under attack. But this is the third sign that was promised. And these seven angels carrying what verse 1 calls the seven last plagues. They represent God's judgment on the world. And as verse 1 says, with these God's wrath is completed or satisfied. Now while the effect of these plagues are felt throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming, there's undoubtedly a climax to this third and final cycle of seven judgments. So compared to the seven seals and the seven trumpets we looked at earlier in our series, these bowls are full judgments, not partial, widespread, not local. The last of them will be, as it says, final, complete, or as God himself says in chapter 16, verse 17, done. And that's what prompts the song. God is going to do what's right. He's going to uphold his justice and maintain the absolute greatness of his character. He's not going to be a careless janitor sweeping sin under the carpet. He won't do a Pierce Higgins and issue punishments that do not fit the crime. He's not going to call into question the credibility of his judgment. Not one single bit. He will judge the world for their rejection of his son and their assaults against the church he loves. And he will bring Satan and his demons to their end. These angels, these seven angels with their plagues, they are a sign of all that. And the mere unveiling of this is what prompts the song. Now, you might be watching this, you might not be a Christian, you may not have heard of God's wrath and God's anger before. And you may be like, why is he so angry? Well, let me be clear about this. God isn't some kind of short-fused hot head. He's not like the Hulk from the Avengers who likes to smash stuff when his anger is roused. No, God's anger is not like human anger. God's wrath is his settled opposition against all transgressions where we choose to live in defiance of his loving authority and in rebe rebellion to his life-giving word. He's offered a way to be free from the judgment that we read about in these passages. Believe in his son, Jesus, the lamb. God sent him not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And when Jesus died on that cross all those years ago, he bore our punishment, death. He quenched God's judgment and said himself, it is finished. 
And God was satisfied to count his death as the penalty for anyone who in their heart of hearts says, I believe and I'm so grateful. Have you? Believe in the Lord Jesus today for the only alternative is that you pay the penalty yourself. Someone has to pay it. You'll be called to account to be in his dock and to hear his sentence. And to do that should be a terrifying prospect. Well, God's commitment to his promise to judge justly prompts the praise of heaven, prompts a song. But the celebration of it is telling uh, because of who is singing it as well. You see, in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 15, we find God's people singing their hearts out. They're singing this medley of the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, which is really helpful for understanding this passage, actually, because the Song of Moses takes us back to Exodus 15. It's a song that's prompted by the realisation that God has brought his people salvation through judgment on their enemies. If you remember the story, Egypt had been oppressing God's people. They were killing their babies and lashing their backs. Israel cried out to God and he heard and answered and through plagues, much like those we find in chapter 16, he judged Egypt and redeemed a people for himself. But right up to the end, it looked so precarious for those defenceless and emaciated people, stuck with the water in front of them and Egypt's army and chariots behind them coming to kill them. They were concerned until God made a way to cross through that sea on dry ground. Would these enemies pursue them all their days is a question they might have been asking. Would Israel enjoy salvation without the fear and threat of their enemies chasing them? Well, God held back the water for his people and let that water in judgment fall on Egypt's strongest. And I guess it's a bit gross to imagine it, but can you picture what it would have been like to have the soldiers who've crushed you daily for your entire life and caused life-altering injuries to you or your brothers and sisters, thrown your children into the Nile and deprived you of love? Can you imagine seeing those bodies afloat in the sea? Can you imagine even the relief? Those who did such wicked things to you are gone. And God did it. Now, I imagine them, these Israelites, looking out over that sea and weeping. And then maybe after a little while, someone singing one of those songs. You know the kind of song that starts really softly with a single voice, yet builds as maybe more joining? And then eventually crescendos in passionate praise of the one who has fought for you and redeemed you and rescued you. Well, that's what God's church are doing here. The singers are those who've been victorious, Nike, over the beasts, his image, and his mark, as the text says. All the things in chapter 13 that meant that life would be hard for Christians while they wait for Christ's coming. And the fact that they're in glory, in God's presence, indicates that they've been faithful unto death. Whether martyred or not, we don't know. But they praise him. What for? Well, look with me, verse 3b. 
Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of Nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come to you and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See what it all means? God is not a lesser person because of his judgment. His greatness and his majesty are maintained by the very act of it. God is not over the top or wrong to punish the wicked. He's right. He's just. This is crime appropriate punishment. God's character or credibility can't be called into question by the severity of his judgment. His holiness has been maintained through it. God's glory is not diminished by his punishments. It's actually magnified. And neither do his judgments necessarily repel all who might well have come to him. You know, if he was just a little bit more lenient, like Pierce Higgins, letting people off scot-free. No, all who long for justice, who long for all wrongs to be made right, run to him and worship him and praise him for his justice. There's no one else righteous to that extent. Do you know what? I actually have to confess something. I feel like I've winced a bit myself as I've approached some of the passages like these in Revelation. And, and I've had some stoters, but I'm saddened by that. I'm embarrassed by that. I mean, we have nothing to apologise for, nothing to hide. And I'm really glad that God sent his son to take my punishment even for that embarrassment. I'm really glad that he will actually maintain his justice and do what, it's right, what is right in all the ways that Revelation points out. And I'm so glad that none of the enemies that hound or threaten me, Satan, sin and death, will hound or threaten me and my brothers and sisters in this, that do that in this life, will follow me into the new heaven and new earth. Are we not glad of that? God is good. His justice proves it. I want to praise God as heaven does, don't you? Let's not be embarrassed. He's perfectly just, just to punish the wicked in all the ways outlined in the rest of this section. And this is point two, that God is just to punish the world for sin. We see this in 15.5 through to the end of 16. Let me show you three quick things about the seven bowls of wrath. The first, that God is the one who is ordering the judgment. Judgment comes from his house, the text says. It's what we see in reference to this temple. Now, John's not saying that there's an actual building, a temple in heaven. He's using Old Testament imagery of the temple to describe the place where God lives. Uh, the temple in Old Testament times is what people associated with God's presence. It was God's house. You, might, you want to meet God, you go there. And there's no doubt the judgment we find in chapter 16 is ordered from his house. Verse 5 says, the temple was opened. Verse 6, out of the temple came the seven angels with seven plagues. On into chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. It's a simple fact stated clearly. Judgment comes from his house. 
Now verse 8 adds that no one can come into his house until this judgment is complete. Now that doesn't mean that believers don't go to be with God when they die. The Bible says absent from the body, present with the Lord. But what it does suggest is that there's a cleansing that needs to take place in creation before anyone gets to enjoy God's final abode, his final dwelling place in the new heaven and new earth. Now, as a parent, I understand this. We've seen so much snow and sleet and rain in recent weeks that our back garden looks like something out of Tough Mudder. Imagine the state of the place if the kids came in with their shoes caked in mud, or me for that reason. Now, to maintain the cleanliness of the house, we say, shoes off at the door. Now, that's kind of what verse 8 anticipates. The final access to God's house is in some way only possible once everything that could make his holy dwelling unholy is removed. So judgment comes from his house and only when everything unclean is removed through the outpouring of his wrath will God make his dwelling open to human beings again. Eden restored. Second thing in this section, no one can escape his judgment apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Like earlier cycles of judgment, everyone and everything is drenched by the wrath poured out from these bowls. Now, I won't go into the details of each one um, because they're very similar to the seven seals and the seven trumpets. But suffice to say that judgment falls on, as we see, verse 2, the land, verse 3, the sea, verse 4 includes fresh water, rivers and so on, verse 8, the sun, uh, verse 10, the throne of the beast, verse 12, the Euphrates and behind it, the armies of Satan and verse 17, the air, Satan's dominion. So this is a worldwide judgment of greater intensity than before. It's culminating in an earthquake as well that kind of shakes the earth to its core and a world to its knees. And like earlier cycles of judgment, those on whom this judgment is poured feel the pain of it, right? And that's the point of punishment, I guess. To utilise the pain of something in order to teach a lesson. Prison is a painful punishment for the person who thinks it's okay to take someone's life. Feel the pain of freedom denied. You deserve your punishment. Or the screen ban's a painful punishment for the kids who needs to know they can't hit their sibling with a pool cue. Uh, when you want to watch the telly, remember how, and you're denied that, remember how that feels and don't hit your sibling again. You know, these judgments are painful to those who experience them and there's a purpose to them. I guess just as they were to Egypt at the Exodus. They're very painful and they're very similar, these plagues here to the plagues of Egypt. From painful sores to water turned to blood, darkness and giant hailstones. It was so agonising to Pharaoh in Egypt that they were like, fine, go, get out of here, just make it stop. Same here. In the bowls poured out in these days and in the days to come, people would gnaw their tongues in agony. What a picture. I mean, what pain must you be in to make you want to bite your own tongue for relief? I bite my own tongue accidentally when I'm eating sometimes. It's really sore. But this is unsettling. You know, I know and I love people for whom this may well be their experience if they don't repent and turn to Christ. It's so hard to hear and process in many ways. It makes me want to say, no, Lord, but that's wrong. 
We mustn't judge these plagues by our sins. We must judge these plagues, our sin, by those plagues. We judge our sins in so many unbiblical ways. We make them out to be small and inconsequential, naughty blips. But God says, God judges them to be serious at every level. Because defying God's loving rule is wrong. Disobeying God's good word intended for our good living is wrong and especially denying God's loving salvation through the son that he sent, it is a super, super serious offence to spurn his love and deny his salvation. No thanks God, I'd rather just be myself. Well if we don't feel it, if we don't feel the rightness of this judgment, even as hard as it is to process it, then perhaps we should pray a little bit more to see sin the way that God sees it and to see the world around us the way God sees it. It's funny, isn't it? He's full of revulsion as he sees it. And yet we are so enamoured by it, attracted by it, I guess deceived by it. Thirdly, the contrasting responses to his judgment actually demonstrate that he is right to judge in all the severe ways that he does. As with earlier judgments, God's judgment on the world serves not only as a punishment, but a corrective, even an opportunity. Some will experience the pain of punishment and be sorry. We know that because this is the age of the gospel going out and God is bringing in his people. But the thing that's striking about this passage is the repeated phrase, verse 9, they refuse to repent. Verse 11, they refuse to repent. Even experiencing what they experience, they refuse to say sorry. Instead, verse 9, they curse the name of God. Verse 11, they curse the God of heaven. Verse 21 again, they cursed God for doing all that he did. And instead, along with their cursing, what did they do? Well, at the very end, they summon an army of armies for Armageddon. Armageddon, this kind of final rallying call to rise up and fight against the God of heaven with some foolish idea that humanity's collective might might actually be a match for the power of God. It's telling, isn't it? They'd rather curse God or fight him when they knowingly experience his judgment in these many and varied ways. You know what that tells us? The case is closed on the guilt and the deservedness of human hearts. Sad, isn't it? It's absolutely heartbreaking. But contrast humanity's response with the testimonies of verses five to seven, of first another angel watching on, and the altar which shelters the martyrs. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And of the martyrs especially, under the altar in heaven, yes, Lord God Almighty, verse 7, true and just are your judgments. So 
These testimonies show that God is perfectly justified in his judgment and actually praiseworthy for upholding his justice. Stark, but it's a strong word. How do we apply this? Well, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've experienced any of these bowls, these judgments in any of these ways. Could it be that God is using hardships that you experience to get your attention, uh, to wake you up, you know, to turn your hearts back to him? In another part of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Say sorry for sin. If this passage is helping you make sense of what you're experiencing in your own life, say sorry, change direction, look to Jesus, the lamb who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, punished in our place so that we could have peace with God. He took judgment of all who would put their trust in him on himself all that time ago. So that people like me, like the folks who belong to Charlotte Chapel, through faith, trust in Christ, will not experience judgment in the end because it's already been satisfied in Jesus. I understand. Maybe you're not ready to do that just yet. Well, what is the next step for you? Maybe the next step for you is actually to analyse humanity more closely. Is it really as wonderful and progressive as the world makes out that it is? For all our technological advance, are we morally better? Absolutely not. For medical science reaching such a lofty height in diagnosis and treatment of thousands of illnesses, we're still brought to our knees by a global pandemic. We are in as precarious a position as we have ever been. Revelation 15 to 16 provides a lens through which you can actually view the world and see things that make sense from God's perspective. And if that's you, please do take a closer look and let us help. Because without a right understanding of both the love of God and the wrath of God, you'll actually never make sense of this world. And for believers, for our brothers and sisters here, the application is actually clear. It's right there in verse 15 of chapter 16. If you've got a red letter Bible, it stands out in red because these are the words of Jesus, the Lamb. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says he's coming soon, like a thief does, suddenly and without warning. Our happiness is found in being ready for that, in being as ready as the Israelites were for the angel of death to come at that first Passover in Egypt. What did they do? Well, they ate a meal in haste with their bags packed and their tunic tucked in their belt, ready to run without any hindrance towards the salvation that God was going to win for them at any moment then. And that's what Christ calls his church to do here. Stay alert to the reality of God's ongoing and final judgment on this world so that you don't get distracted by it or seduced by it, the world that is. This is not our home. It's just a hotel. Let's not get mortgaged to a condemned property. And stay clothed. Get out of our spiritual jammies and stay dressed. For God has work for us to do along the way. To proclaim his glory. To glorify his name. For the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of a sheep. All in preparation for that day when the house of God is opened. And we finally see his face. The face of Jesus the Lamb 
who took and satisfied God's wrath. Stay awake. Stay clothed. Jesus said, you'll be happy if you do. God the judge will do what is right. And judges like that deserve to be praised. Amen.